Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned on the show that I felt that since I grew a mustache, I have been unable to wear a baseball hat uh, because it makes me look like a high school football coach. And a lot of you have reached out to me over that and have offered love and support during this difficult time. And I really appreciate that. And I want to let you know I'm doing okay. And there's actually a recent development in this ongoing story. I have found a different type of hat that has made it into my regular rotation. Now, this is a hat that I had previously considered to be more of a special occasion hat that fit a specific niche, but wasn't really for everyday use. But I've got to say, over the past couple of weeks, I have found the Derby to be a surprisingly versatile hat. It's a piece of headwear that previously I had always thought was just if you wanted to look like an Edwardian-era banker who loved business and finance but didn't think that children should have imaginations. And it is great for that. But there are a bunch of other looks that it can pull off as well. Like gruff but lovable owner of an Old West hardware store who just wishes someone would clean up this town. Or the second of two cartoon thugs who have been tasked by their villainous boss with kidnapping an adorable puppy but are starting to have some misgivings. Or, of course, the comic relief sidekick of the Golden Age Green Lantern, Doiby Dickles, who loves talking about his Doiby and pronounces it Doiby. So as you can see, there are a number of looks the Derby hat is able to pull off. Especially if you have absolutely no intention of leaving your home for the next several weeks. But enough of this hat-related falderall. Let's talk about a comic book. Oddly, one in which a madness-inducing super hat does play a pivotal role. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. I showed up to the Tighten Up the Defense Ball, ready to serve up more realness than all. In turtleneck, jersey, pants with all the pleats, green and purple, like the evil elites. My hair curled in pretzels, my boobs in armor. My abs window open, my abs truly bomber. My face on my loincloth, my helmet, a shark head. I slayed all the others. They were practically dead. Sartorially speaking, my look was quite flawless. But enough about my ferocity. Let's get to the synopsis. Synopsis! Thanks, Devin! New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 19, April 1986. Breaking up is hard to do. Written by Marf Wolfman, drotted by Eduardo Beretta, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Starfire, and Hawk! Speedy, Robin, the Jason Todd one, The Flash, the Wally West one, and Aqualad. Hooray! Previously in the New Teen Titans. 
Nightwing had just had a really shitty birthday. The angsty acrobat adventurer celebrated the anniversary of his birth on the planet Okara with his now ex-girlfriend Starfire and her new husband. Awkward. A few weeks earlier, Starfire had been invited to return to her home planet of Tamaran after a long exile and brought her then-boyfriend Dick along for the ride. Upon arrival, the spicy space princess was dismayed to realize that her father harbored ulterior motives for hosting this family reunion. Tamaran was in the throes of a bloody civil war, and in order to consolidate his power, Starfire's shitty dad, King Meander, had arranged for his daughter to marry a prince that Cory and I decided was named Captain George Papadopoulos for reasons that I no longer recall. Neither of the principal parties in this arrangement was particularly happy about this forced engagement, but they agreed to go through with the marriage to preserve planetary peace. Dick was understandably distraught by his beloved's betrothal, but declined to interfere with the wedding. The ceremony went off without a hitch, but the reception was a different matter, as the unhappy newlyweds were startled to find themselves with wedding crashers nearly as unpleasant as Vince Vaughn, and considerably more deadly. Starfire's evil sister Commander, who had previously been presumed dead, led a populist uprising into the temple and seized control of the planet. Commander declared herself Empress of Tamaran and shoved the rest of her family onto a spaceship, which she subsequently surreptitiously exploded. Oh no! From their jail cell on Tamaran, Dick and Captain Papadopoulos bonded over the fact that they both hated Commander and wanted revenge. But before the new pals had time to exchange friendship bracelets, they were busted out of prison by loyalist forces and were taken to the planet Okara, where they were surprised to find that Starfire and her parents were not so dead after all, having escaped their doomed spaceship just before its detonation. Hooray! Starfire and Papadopoulos began some special martial arts training in anticipation of an attack on Tamaran to regain the throne. Dick was glad that Coriander wasn't dead, but watching her grow closer to her new husband as they trained in battle together was more than the heartbroken birthday boy could bear. After bidding Starfire and her family a bitter goodbye, he hitched a ride back to Earth. During Nightwing's absence, things on Earth hadn't been going so great for our post-pubescent protagonists. New team member Cole had died during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Bye, Cole. Beast Boy's stepdad Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, had flipped his wig due to his addiction to wearing a reality-warping magic hat, and had blown up some rats with his mind and tried to murder the Titans. The Church of Blood had kidnapped a recently resurrected Raven and brainwashed amnesiac alien angel Zack Wingman. And perhaps most distressing of all, Wonder Girl's husband, Professor Terry Long, had writer's block and wanted Donna's help writing a paper. Oh no! Donna was about to do Terry's homework for him, but when she found out that Dick was home and bummed out, she put on her grief-counseling tights and rushed to Dick's apartment to console her crime-fighting compatriot. Upon arrival, Donna was disappointed to find that Dick was not particularly receptive to her presence and was being a real Grayson. While Wonder Girl attempted to alleviate our upset aerialist's angst, Beast Boy and Cyborg went off in search of Steve Dayton. They found the bewildered billionaire holed up in a warehouse, wearing his Mentos helmet and reciting shitty poetry to himself. Not a great sign. The two Titans tried to talk to the troubled technocrat, but Dayton, addled by the Mentos hat's influence, went full Freshmaker and attacked the young heroes, badly injuring Cyborg. Gadzooks! How will Starfire deal with her despair at Dick's departure? Can Beast Boy get through to his frenzied father figure? And how will Donna try to cheer up Nightwing?
Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, by boning down with George Papadopoulos, nope, and he turned into a kangaroo and everything, and she punches him through a wall. Interesting approach. Cyborg collapses under the Freshmaker's unrelenting assault. Beast Boy changes into a big old lion and leaps between his robot buddy and demented dad. The shape-shifting teen tries to talk some sense into Dayton, but repeated use of the Freshmaker helmet has eroded the perturbed plutocrat's ability to reason. Steve uses his magic hat to project images of he and Beast Boy's deceased friends and family from Doom Patrol. The projections and Dayton alike say that Gar and Steve share the blame for Doom Patrol's demise. The Freshmaker announces his plans to atone for his guilt by killing Beast Boy and forming a new Doom Patrol. Um, you know, I hate to be a wet blanket here, but judging by his recent behavior, doesn't really seem like team leadership is part of Steve Dayton's skill set. Apparently, Cyborg agrees with me on that point. With his last ounce of strength, the mostly molybdenum marvel blasts the Freshmaker in the back with a laser saving a momentarily stunned Beast Boy from certain doom. The adolescent Animorph manages to recover from his stepdad's emotional onslaught, but by the time he does, the Freshmaker is long gone. Gar changes into a gorilla and rushes a critically wounded cyborg to his physician at Star Labs. A few minutes later, the two teens burst through Dr. Clyburn's skylight, and Victor is rushed to the operating room. Before surgery, the physical therapist whom Vic has been flirting with lately, Dr. Sarah Charles, rushes into the room and tells Vic not to die. Good advice, Dr. Charles. Speaking of advice, across town Donna is advising a somewhat disheveled and decidedly disinterested Dick Grayson that he needs to stop being a jerk to all his friends. Dick disagrees. He decides to live up to his first name by lashing out at Wonder Girl and blaming her for all the misfortune that the team suffered during his absence. When Donna thwarts his attempt to storm off the door, Dick totally goes off on her, telling her that she's responsible for Cole's death and Raven's disappearance and that she should have been focusing on the team rather than worrying about doing her creepy husband's homework for him. Ouch. I mean, he's not entirely wrong, especially about that last part, but sheesh. Eventually, Donna has had enough and backhands Dick through a wall and yells at him to shut up. Okay, Involuntarily Kool-Aid manning a guy through his own apartment is a pretty intense debate tactic, but still... Hooray! Unfortunately for her, Wonder Girl's unorthodox approach to discourse does not yield the results that she hoped for. Dick leaps up and continues to berate Donna, insisting that her pursuit of a perfect life has yielded disastrous results for all of those around her. Once Donna is emotionally devastated and reduced to tears by his criticism, Dick walks out the door. He feels bad for like a second, but then is like, nah, I was right. Fuck her for giving a shit about me. What an asshole. The vindictive vigilante changes into his Nightwing duds and swings away on a rope, internally announcing his intention to investigate the Church of Blood himself and see if he can track down Raven. A distressed Donna calls her husband Terry at work to get some emotional support, but Terry's too busy getting yelled at by his boss to talk right then. He tells his superheroic spouse that he'll try to listen to her later if he isn't too busy not writing his own paper. He also mentions that Dr. Sarah Charles called for her earlier and said that it was important. Then he hangs up. Terry's boss, who is I guess probably the college's crusty old dean, is like, Look, Terry, you haven't written anything in three years. If you don't publish something soon, we'll take your tenure away. 
Yes, I know that isn't how tenure usually works, and it kind of defeats the entire purpose of having tenure if we can revoke it just like that, but I'm probably the dean, and that means that what I say goes. Then he leaves to go polish his deansmanship medals and think about how much he hates that danked Delta house. Terry is pretty freaked out and thinks to himself that he knows he needs to work on that paper, but he just can't write. Now, I'm going to go ahead and assume that he means that he has writer's block and not that he's illiterate, because that would be a pretty wild reveal when you consider that he's a tenured professor. And again, this is Terry Long we're talking about, so who knows? He does seem pretty into the idea of having someone else write that paper for him. While Terry's boss was chewing him out for his lack of productivity, Wonder Girl was on her way over to Star Labs to see what Dr. Charles had called her about. When she arrives, Gar fills her in on he and Cyborg's encounter with the Freshmaker and the disastrous results of that confrontation. Don is a total asshole to Beast Boy for no reason, which is generally the sort of thing I approve of, but this time seems a little inappropriate. She goes on to be rude to Doctors Clyburn and Charles, which is even more out of line as neither of them is Beast Boy. Clyburn's like, Well, Wonder Girl, I don't remember you being such a jerk, and I'm not crazy about it, but here's the deal. Cyborg isn't doing so great. His dad designed his robot parts for everyday roboting, not this fancy superhero roboting. He roboted way too hard, and now all his organs are about to turn to soup. We're going to try to cut him open and switch out all his metal bits with some fancy new nonsensium replacement parts and see how that goes, but we've never done this before, and there's a pretty good chance he'll die. Also, this green kid broke my skylight. I think that pretty much brings us up to speed. Donna and Gar head outside to go to the park and get a hot dog as Dr. Clyburn prepares for the operation. Donna says she's sorry for acting like such a jerk, and Beast Boy playfully gives her a little guff but accepts the apology. They run into Cyborg's former off-again, off-again, not really, but at one time it seemed like love interest, Sarah Sims. Sarah's a teacher, and she and her new boyfriend Gary had taken their class of children with disabilities to the park. She asked Donna and Gar how it's going. Donna's like, Actually, not great. Looks like Vic might die. How are you? Damn it, Donna. You are really not killing it with social interactions today. Sarah tells Gary to take the kids back to the school and rushes to the hospital to see Vic. When she gets there, Dr. Sarah Charles fills her in on Vic's situation. Then the two Sarahs have a Sarah-to-Sarah chat about their respective relationships with Victor. Sims used to want to date him, but never actually did, and Charles would like to date him, but is worried that she might never get to. While the Sarahs are getting to know one another, Nightwing is breaking into the New York headquarters of that strangely sanguinary sinister sect, the Church of Blood. Dick is back to feeling bad about being mean to Donna, and is pretty sure he doesn't want to be a Teen Titan anymore. For one thing, after his recent shitty birthday, he's no longer a teen. Really? Wow. They grow up so fast. Seems like just 46 years ago he was just a carefree boy acrobat performing in the circus with his family. Where does the time go? The world's oldest new 20-year-old tries to distract himself from both his guilt and the conundrum of comic book chronology by hacking into the church's computer. Great plan. One slight problem, though. After breaking into the building and sitting down in front of the computer, Dick remembers that he doesn't actually know how to hack into a computer. Whoops. The forgetful former teen pokes a few random keys, but after a couple of minutes of this, the church's security shows up and he's forced to flee, barely making it out of the building alive. On the planet Okara, Starfire and Papadopoulos continue their training. 
Coriander is uncharacteristically sluggish and distracted during a battle session and is almost injured. She tells her family that she knows she needs to put it behind her, but she misses Nightwing and can't stop thinking about him. Papadopoulos is like, I know this must be a difficult time for you, but maybe it would distract you if we boned down? Starfire's mom is like, oh yes, you two should totally bone down. Boning is great! Um, okay. So the two newlyweds head to their bedroom and bone the fuck down. But as they make love, it is Nightwing, not her husband, that Coriander is thinking of. She's probably also thinking a little bit about the fact that her mom is, like, right outside the room grinning and giving a big thumbs up. Back on Earth, Cyborg's surgery is a big success. Hooray! Dawn is relieved, but contemplative. She heads back to the Titan Tower to think things over. She checks her messages and finds that she missed a call from the team's FBI liaison, the delightfully named King Faraday. When she reaches him, the gruff espionage enthusiast informs Donna that he has an important government mission for the Titans. At first, Wonder Girl isn't sure that the gang is in any shape to go on an adventure, but then she thinks things over for a second and gets an idea. The young Amazon makes a few calls and later that night returns to the Titan Tower to greet some familiar faces. Seated at the conference table are Speedy, Hawk, Wally West, Aqualad, and for some reason the Jason Todd version of Robin. That's right. The original Teen Titans are back. I mean, you know, sort of. But still. Hooray! Man, I hope Wally chugs some syrup. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic technology is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good? Not bad? Yeah, not bad at all. I've stumbled upon a couple of tricks that have been jolting me out of any doldrums I might occasionally find myself in. Yeah? One of them is I've found a picture of a WWF wrestler named Tugboat, and every time I look at it, it just makes me happy. So I've started including that picture with all of my text messages, and it's uh, pretty fun. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I think I did ask you about that. Yeah, I didn't answer. Yeah. Thanks for explaining. Yeah, no problem. I just can't look at that picture and not be happy. I had a Pandora station seated off Journey songs, um, and I think um, Love Song. Is that by Tesla? Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, those, like were the seeds and so that like whenever i was being irrationally or just you know needed to pick me up i'd put that on and after a few songs in it's pretty hard to still be bummed out that's nice so picture a tugboat journey radio yeah the other thing that has been uh getting me through the tough times has been lisa and i started watching a tv show that is kind of the most british thing ever it's about a police detective who wants to open a store making meat pies and so he does but then his boss keeps making him be a cop but he just wants to uh bake pies and then he <laughs> solves some crimes i forget what it's called it's something like pie detective it's basically 
one step away from a show about a sentient cup of Earl Grey in terms of Britishness. <laughs> wow. But at one point, he is waxing nostalgic about a meal he once ate, and he says the phrase, slabs of moist ham. Oh. And every time I think of the phrase slabs of moist ham, it makes me laugh because it is difficult for me to imagine a less appetizing sentence. Yeah, that must be a cultural thing. I, as an American, that just sounds bad. Chunks of wet beef. <laughs> Some nice damp pork. Oh, stop it. Okay, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. It's okay. Slabs of moist ham it is. Ugh. Well, enough talk of slabs of moist ham. Now that Hub has ruined pork products for all of us. You want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. Man, that Perez cover is amazing. It is. It was so good, and I was so excited to see his name on the cover again. Mm-hmm. It is so intense. It is a battered Nightwing leaning against a shattered mirror that apparently Wonder Girl has just smashed him into. And it is such a good picture. It is. It really captures the ass kickery he was handed. And Wonder Girl's anger, which we don't always really get to see portrayed. And, and that's one of the interesting things I found about this issue was... It explored the this idea of, you know, perfection in a hero and what interesting and, you know, kind of sad things can, can happen because that's obviously not the case when there's a lot of emotional stress going on. It definitely makes a point in this issue. Even the characters that are superhuman or not human are still very human. And it's nice to see that. Honestly, I loved this issue. I got sucked in and was riveted to the story from beginning to end. Definitely have some, you know, tiny quibbles with it, but it was really, really well done. And I was, yeah, totally sucked in. I was prepared for a letdown on the art after seeing the Perez cover, but Eduardo Barreto once again just knocks it out of the park. It is an absolutely gorgeously illustrated issue. He and Romeo Tangal did a great job. Marv Wolfman does a great job in it. It's uh, it's really nice. Yeah. Also, our shit-talking and our coverage of the previous issue is validated by Wolfman with uh, Terry Long just being a real dipshit. Oh, yeah. Terry Long is still an absolute piece of garbage. What a shitty professor. We see that not only does he have writer's block, but he hasn't written anything in three goddamn years. And so he definitely cannot blame Donna not helping him with this paper on her, because hopefully he was not dating Donna, who I believe is still a teenager, although she is, I believe, 19 now, uh, three years ago. Let's really hope that wasn't the case. Do your fucking job, Terry. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to retcon that relationship into not being creepy as fuck. Yeah, I don't know that they can. And honestly, I got so stoked seeing the last page of this comic book. The original, and I'm putting that in air quotes, Teen Titans are back. Yay. Yay? There is a really fun splash page with Hawk and Speedy and 
the new Robin and Aqualad and Wally West as the Flash and Donna. And I got really excited about that. It was really fun to see. It's a it's a super cute picture. And I was distracted by, I know it's just the perspective, but the male gaze aspect of it. It's like the Titans and Donna Troy's boobs. Yeah, there is that. And it does kind of look like Wally is leering at them. Also, I got to say, I feel really bad for Aqualad in this picture. Why? Because look at the Teen Titan team that is surrounding him. It is Hank Hall as Hawk. It is Speedy. <laughs> it is the Wally West that we've known over the past uh, new Teen Titans issues. And it is Jason Todd. Well, that explains his his steely gaze <laughs> into the camera. He's just like, look, get a load of these assholes. Well, it looks like he is making like significant eye contact with Wonder Girl, and she is kind of looking apologetically at him. It's like, really, Wendy? Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. That said, it, it I felt the same sort of uh, nostalgic happiness to uh, to see that. Yeah. It's an odd choice of those members for original Teen Titans are back. Because... Why is New Robin there? Do they just need a Robin if they're going to be the the old Teen Titans? Or is he the replacement for Dove because they just needed another bird-named guy and Dove is dead now? Yeah, no, I I think I'll go with they needed a Robin. Okay. I was hoping Hawk was going to try to make him into the new Dove. No, I I don't see it coming. Nah, that's too bad. They do seem to kind of have a lot of bird-named guys on the team in general. Yeah, well, some people think think birds are fine. I suppose that's true. The other thing about that picture is from the little arrows coming off of the dynamic word bubble, it looks like they're all in unison saying a fairly long phrase, which is, better believe it, the original Teen Titans are back. Mm -hmm. And it really just looks like Hawk is the only one who's talking. I wonder if... Now that his partner has isn't around anymore, if he's just been learning ventriloquism or something, because everyone else has their mouth closed. I mean, especially Aqualad. And that is such a long phrase for everyone to say in unison. Yeah, I bet even just the two of us, like, it, it wouldn't be perfectly synced up. No, we, we are bad. You, do you want to try it? You'll get a big delight. Oh, wait. <laughs> All right, you ready? Uh-huh. Better believe, Better believe it, it, the original Teen Titans, Titans are, back. are back. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty great. Yeah. Well, I think we nailed that one. Did that with my mouth closed, too. <laughs> I was drinking a glass of water the whole time. <laughs> oh, oh, the one-upmanship is strong. I do love the fact that in old, like, Silver Age comics, one of Superman's powers was super ventriloquism. Really? Yeah. That's a good way to he mess had, with people. Yeah. He had a lot of fun one-off powers. The super ventriloquism came up more than once, but there was a while where he could fire tiny supermen out of his fingers. That was maybe my favorite. Wow. Also good at building robots. Uh, that seems like a stretch. Yeah, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he was really good at stretching, too. He was a real super man. Hmm, I suppose. We also get uh, what, for these comics at least, is a fairly graphic sex scene in this issue. Mm-hmm. 
I think any other time we've seen it shown in this comic, it's been either one panel leading up to the fact that they might be about to have sex, or one panel suggesting a post-coital scene in which it is implied that two characters just had sex. And honestly, those seemed pretty racy, but in this we get a full-page 13-panel spread of Starfire and Papadopoulos doing it. What'd you think of that? I thought it was fairly tastefully done as far as these things go, and I appreciated that the way that they showed that the lights were off was by putting like a blue filter over everything, mm-hmm. which seemed appropriate. I did think to myself, like, I feel bad for the dude that thinks he's finally achieving a kind of romantic goal in that he thinks Starfire is opening up to him, but she's just thinking about somebody else the whole time. Yeah, I mean, although even if he does have like a little bit of a telepathic link left from their marriage, if all he over if all he overhears is her thinking the phrase with every kiss I think of Dick. <laughs> then I mean, he's still feeling pretty good about himself. Oh, they've got to have a different name for it there. I guess you're probably right. On Tamarin, it's probably called a Grayson. This scene ends with what looks like he's going down on Starfire, and she is apparently achieving orgasm. So, you know what? Good for her, and good for him. Yeah. Tamaranians always struck me as a pretty sex-positive culture. Very much so. In fact, to the point where, as they are heading off to their bedchamber, Starfire's mom is watching and being like, All right, finally, they are gonna fuck. Nice. Yeah, I that didn't escape me, and I was creeped out by it. Yeah. Well, that's Tamaran for you. Or I guess technically they're still on Okara. I do feel bad for Captain Papadopoulos's girlfriend, who I'm not sure if she's still in the picture, if she's on Okara with them. Seems like he f- forgot all about her. Yeah, he has gone over to Team Starfire, and... Well, I can't say that I blame him in terms of Starfire seems like a wonderful woman and they did kind of soul bond. It did previously seem like he was very emotionally attached to this other young woman who was being very understanding. And now she's just to the side. So, sucks to be her. Yep, that was a bummer. One of the other relationship things that I I thought was interesting is that Wolfman finally decided to end dancing around what is the relationship between Cyborg and Sarah Sims. Yeah, I mean, they had kind of ended that a little while ago when they had their big confrontation in which Victor was irrationally angry at her and we first met Gary. But now not only does she confirm that they were never lovers, they were just close friends that she thought might date at some point, but we have now also confirmation that Cyborg is getting what I cynically can't help but think of as what audiences would feel was a more racially appropriate love interest. Mm-hmm. Who is still named Sarah. In uh, Sarah Charles, his physical therapist, which is also kind of an awkward relationship. Man, you are not going to be slouching in that relationship. No. <laughs> Physically. Right. Yeah. Also, though, like, you 
shouldn't be dating your patients, it seems like, either as, as a doctor, especially, you know, if you're nursing them through a difficult and vulnerable time, which apparently Cyborg is probably going to have to go through again. I hope that he gets a different physical therapist at this point if he is going to start dating Sarah number two. Yeah, the medical ethics there are a little sticky. As are Dr. Clyburn's rules for her operating room. Because we see in, like, one panel she is wearing her, like, scrubs and mask and is about to start working on Cyborg. And then Sarah Sims busts into the room and she's like, okay, it's fine. She can stay there, friends. It's like, the germs don't know that. Mm -hmm. The same thing with uh, Sarah, too, busting into the room. Sarah Charles, which she also does. And is just like, oh, my goodness, Victor, is he going to be okay? It's like, that should be a closed room at that point. We see that. Clyburn is wearing her scrubs and full medical gear. Also, th- her office needs a door. Like, yeah. why, why, why is Beast Boy in his gorilla form forced to Kool-Aid Man through a window with the unconscious cyborg? Well, was he forced to or did he just do it? Because even if he does decide that the most expedient way to enter the office is via busting through the skylight... Maybe turn around when you're doing that. Like, you could go butt first through that window in your gorilla form and not use the unconscious on death's door best friend that you are carrying as a battering ram. Yeah, that seemed bad. Not a great move. And up until that point, Beast Boy had done pretty darn well for himself in this issue, all things considered. Mm -hmm. Like... He held his own one-on-one against the Mentos man, and if he wasn't worried about saving Cyborg, there's a pretty good chance he would have been able to bring his dad in. And his dad was in full Freshmaker mode. Mm -hmm. Like, that was a pretty rough encounter. Yeah, and good on him for being, I guess, mentally tough enough that uh, his dad doing that really mean thing that he did where he basically said you're responsible for the death of all these loved ones and then projecting their images, blaming him into his head yeah that's not a thing that's easily shook off i imagine no especially when we have seen previously in like the trigon encounters that is beast boy's greatest fear and so apparently he has grown a bit that he is able to deal with that and put things aside and still take care of his friend so good for him there we did see something interesting too that mentos is planning on reassembling a new doom patrol who do you think's going to be joining that thing? I really can't imagine. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be like an evil Doom Patrol. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the team is just going to be like the Freshmaker and an old mop that he's been talking to and a rat that he exploded with his mind and, I don't know, probably Gary because that guy seems to pop up a lot. And, uh, I don't know, Porcupines? Yeah, probably Porcupine. <laughs> He'll come over from the Marvel Universe. He's not doing anything better. He's just having such a hard time getting getting work. <laughs> I really thought this whole EST movement bozo cult that I joined would uh, turn things around for me, but I don't know, man. My agent says it's the costume, but I think it's great. <laughs> Who isn't most intimidated by a vaguely metallic haystack? Yeah. Anyway, I'm joining this new Doom Patrol. <laughs> Bye-bye, Marvel. Man, 
Now that it's not his birthday anymore, I feel like we can really start giving it to Dick for what an asshole he's been. Aye, aye, aye. He is being such a fucking turd in this issue. Like, somebody needs to get that guy a motivational calendar so that he can realize that his attitude is contagious and his is not worth catching. <laughs> you know, the thing that even compounds his douchebaggery is that he's aware of it mm-hmm. and then just basically like he is pretty self-reflective and he's like oh, i said that stuff to donna to be hurtful and that was a real dick move and then he kind of doubles down by saying oh well yeah and i mean he's not wrong about anything that he said which doesn't make it better because mm-hmm. it's still not helpful or useful or kind to say those things and in some ways it's more hurtful because there is a grain of truth in it and man you see the effect that it has it causes donna to doubt herself and become really upset and lash out at beast boy like the one time he doesn't deserve it yeah and he had valid points but like you said it was just he was just doing it to be emotionally cruel which Mm -hmm. is shitty but her response was also not at all as measured as i would have expected from her like she didn't receive that very well either No, but it was very, very satisfying to watch. The one frame where she is just freaking out on him. It is up for debate whether she is referring to him by name here or not. When she just backhands the shit out of him, smacks him through a wall, and says, Shut up, dick! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah! I think that's also something that the, the cover art captured quite well is that nightwing's position as a you know normal powered guy among actual titans is a little tenuous like she really handed his ass to him he recovers from it remarkably quickly though because he is literally put through a wall Mm -hmm. like he is involuntarily kool-aid manned through his own apartment wall into the adjacent room and ouch Yeah, and the way the wall is drawn is like it's like four-inch thick concrete. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, no no normal human would have been okay with that. I'm I'm thinking it's just some super cheap drywall. Probably. I've lived in apartments where I could probably be thrown through a wall and still be relatively okay. Although I don't know that I would be jumping up and doing acrobatic flips seconds later. The way that I, you know, normally do. Yeah, right. And also, I mean, what's up with the building codes? There is no framing whatsoever. <laughs> There's no studs. Yeah, no. Imagine trying to hang a shelf in that apartment. It'd be a fucking nightmare. Very unsafe. We also learned that Dick is uh, no longer a, a teen. Yeah, he is 20 years old. I guess that birthday that he celebrated by uh, sullenly nursing a cup of coffee was the big 2-0, so... I don't know, can we even call them the Teen Titans anymore? I assumed that he was turning 19, but are we in a Menudo-type situation where he is now automatically off the team? Or will it be rebranded as just the Titans? I honestly don't know what's going to happen at this point. There's talk of the team disbanding, and I had kind of written that off last issue, but maybe they are going to do a relaunch with some new members. I really don't know. Yeah, I really hope that um, Speedy and Jason Todd and Hawk are not going <laughs> to stick around. 
Or I don't know, maybe it'll be a new, better version? Yeah, maybe. I mean, why wouldn't they bring back Mao? Or like, I guess Lilith is now busy being a Greek god, but seems like Wally's pretty busy being the Flash, too. Like, I would think that she could stop by. Maybe Karen could come back as Bumblebee. You know, there's plenty of previous Titans we could call back into the fray here. Agreed. Maybe some of the outsiders could join. We could bring over, like, uh, you know, Halo or somebody. I think she's a teen. Bryon, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, That's they need the 80s flashy dresser uh, aspect that uh, Halo would bring. Plus, honestly, as much of a douche as Hawk was before, without the tempering influence of his whiny little creepy brother, I, I mean, how bad is he going to be? Or was that kind of goading him into some of his more boorish behavior. Do you think Hawk without Dove is going to be better or worse? Um, I think he'll be probably more effective. Yeah. The case, if there was ever a shred of one for pacifism that was being made with the Dove character, was extremely weak. Man, I just went back and reread Hawk and Dove's first appearance, and they were created by Steve Ditko, who is one of my favorite artists, but... He very clearly hated the Dove character <laughs> so much. <laughs> and it wasn't even like making the pretense that there was any equivalency between Hawk and Dove. It really was just like, Hawk is right, Dove is wrong. Yeah. Their dad was a judge and they were having an argument and Dove was just like, violence never solved anything. And Hawk was like, shut up, Don, you're an idiot. And their dad was just like, well, now, Dove? You're wrong. And Hawk, you didn't explain why you feel that way, so that makes you wrong, too. <laughs> but it really was just a matter of just like, okay, so you're wrong, and you didn't show your work, so I can't give you full credit. That's actually a... That's pretty good. I often think of... We were watching some of the, the DC uh, Titans TV show, and... Uh, the difference between the Dove character there and the Dove character that, that we were reading is remarkable. Well, they kind of dispense with the pretense of pacifism for the Dove character in that. Yeah, I know. It's just pretty much bird costume, but... Yeah. So much more effective. Yeah, really. I, I mean, having a overt pacifist whose superpowers are strong and fast and good at punching, it never quite was a comfortable fit. Nope, I'm just going to hold you while my brother punches the guy and be like, stop hitting him. But also, I'm holding you in place so that you can be hit. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Dr. Clyburn and her office. Um, is there a coffee shop inside of Star Labs? Or does Star Labs have a false front that's a coffee shop, like a get smart type thing, that that's how you get into the building. Because it pretty clearly looks like they are having the conversation inside the hospital, but they are looking through a window that is labeled coffee shop. Oh yeah, coffee shop. And there's a guy carrying a tray with milk. Yeah, and then when you go inside, it looks like it is like the, maybe the cafeteria of a hospital. Did they just put a fun label on there? Yeah. Oh, well, good for them, I guess. That's what I was thinking. The other thing about Clyburn that I wanted to note, when she is first on the phone, when Beast Boy smashes through the skyscraper using his injured friend as a battering ram, she is on the phone with somebody named Mac, 
she tells him to give his daughter Jamie a kiss goodnight and have one for himself too, which is generous of her, but she's got to go right then. Later, when she is talking to Donna and Beast Boy about the procedure that they're about to do on Cyborg, she says that they are calling in some specialists and getting technological aid from Ted Cord and Mac Ryan. Ted Cord is the Blue Beetle. That's his alter ego, and he's recently been introduced into the DC Universe at that point through Crisis. He was previously a Charlton hero that they had bought, and that was part of what Crisis was doing, was mainlining characters like Blue Beetle and Captain Atom and those guys into the DC Universe. Which made me wonder who Mac Ryan was. And there's kind of an interesting answer to that. Mac Ryan is a character who never actually existed in DC, but almost did. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, they were going to introduce a new Flash after Barry Allen died. That ended up being Wally West. He ended up putting on his big boy spandex and just being regular Flash, which makes sense. But Len Wein had a proposal that had gone pretty far down the line with DC that they would introduce a new character as the Flash with a slightly different set of powers, and that was going to be lab technician Mac Ryan, who was friends with Dr. Clyburn. Man, I am so glad you looked that up because when I was doing my reading, I did a very cursory Googling, and the only information I got was the real reason why Meg Ryan's career was destroyed. And I just, well, I couldn't even, it? I didn't read it, man. I was like, I don't, oh. don't want to know this. Yeah, you're right. That's not what the internet is for, celebrity gossip. The internet is for looking at pictures of WWF superstar Tugboat. <laughs> it is a funny picture. <laughs> it makes me so happy. But yeah, they had this whole backstory established for this character. And like I said, it went pretty far down the line before they decided to go with Wally West. So he was going to be a single father who had a daughter who was between 8 and 12, which is the Jamie that gets referred to. But by the time this issue came out, they had clearly scrapped the idea for the character because you see Wally is wearing the full Flash costume. But this was just kind of like an in-house nod to this story idea. So... The mention of Mac Ryan is kind of a little ode to the Flash that never was, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Wow, nice catch. When Beast Boy and Donna are hanging out in the park and she is apologizing loosely to Beast Boy and he's fucking with her a little bit, which I actually kind of enjoyed, they get approached by Sarah Sims and Gary and the class of children. There's a weird little interchange where Sarah Sims says, and you guys all know Gary, right? And I was like, wait, do they? And I had to rethink. It's like, no, none of them know Gary. Like, Cyborg met him once. It would be really wild if the rest of the Titans just were still hanging out with Sarah Sims. Maybe they are. But I think it's probably more likely that Sarah Sims didn't remember Donna or Beast Boy's names and was doing that thing with... Oh, and Gary, introduce yourself. And I feel like Gary really dropped the ball because he just said like, yeah, nice to meet you. He didn't even try to learn their names. Mm -hmm. He just should have picked up on that cue, I think. Well, he's no cyborg. No, that's true. 
I think we established that he's probably an actor, and maybe he just assumed that uh, everyone already knew who he was. He's Gary. He's going to be in the new Doom Patrol. <laughs> Lucky him. I hope that when Porcupine goes to introduce himself to people, Gary will pick up on the cue a little bit better. Yeah. Because it is really awkward when you don't remember somebody's name and you're with somebody and you're expected to introduce them to them. Yeah, no, Gary's going to do that, but he's going to, when he says, and you are, he'll like wiggle his eyebrows real crazy and make it awkward. Yeah, that's Gary. <laughs> well, are you ready to get into the minutia? I am ready. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Uh, and just before we get into the minutia proper, we do have a mebby count of one in this issue. One of the kids who is working with Sarah Sims' class says mebby. Probably she picked that up from Vic. What category would you like to hit first? Let's talk about jerks and turkeys. Okay. You're right, Corey. It's time to take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? Well, I did like how Dick called Brother Blood's church guards, jerks, and turkeys in quick succession. I did too. The panel specifically where he is pushing them down and says, get out of my way, jerks, I'm coming through, mm -hmm. is really, really funny for me, and I hope I don't end up using that in my everyday life. <laughs> oh, definitely not your everyday life, but your like once in a great while exceptional case when your brother is there to see it life. That can be pretty good. So I, I appreciated that, but I think my favorite was actually Dick dissing himself a little bit with a zinger that we've talked about before because it's a really confusing kind of phrase. And that's um, where he says he feels like leftover garbage. Yeah, I was confused about that phrase, too, and I didn't know that. <laughs> this isn't my good new fresh garbage. I think it came up before. If memory serves, last time what we came up with was it's like during the, like the garbage strikes that happened in New York, it's like the garbage that sat for a long time. Oh. And got really nasty as the leftover garbage. But yeah, whenever I see that, I'm like, there, that's a, there's no, that's not a thing. Garbage is leftovers that you didn't consume. Yeah, it, it presupposes that you are going to use most of the garbage for something. Mm -hmm. But it's garbage. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not what he's cooking in that pan. It didn't look very appetizing, whatever it was, when he's uh, nursing that cup of coffee like it was his birthday and uh, taking a pan off of the burner when Donna's over there. Did you catch that? Yeah, I did. And... Um, first of all, just the dick with a five o'clock shadow, like I know they put it there to make it seem like he's in a sketchy frame of mind, but I actually think it's a great look for him. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, I think this being the late eighties, he was probably trying to give Donna some speech about your brain on drugs, <laughs> had a fried egg going on. I think that he probably cooked it too long, so it's no longer as moist as he would like, but he was probably trying to cook up some moist slabs of ham. And so he just got, he just now has like dry slabs of ham. Yeah, nobody wants that. Ugh, that sounds unappetizing. Gross. You need those ham slabs to be nice and damp. 
See, none of the adjectives <laughs> that we have to describe the ideal moisture content of our ham are adequate. Juicy? Yeah, juicy. Juicy is a perfectly good way to describe delicious ham. That works. I don't know why you would use moist. I know that's also a word that a lot of people really hate the phonetic sound of. So uh, the fact that I keep saying it, uh, sorry, a little bit. Um, but also, <laughs> get out of my way, jerks. <laughs> yeah, it's, I know you don't like the sorry, not sorry thing, but that is totally what you're doing. Yeah, that's fair. I just can't help it. Slabs of moist ham is the funniest phrase I've oh, ever that's heard. sounds so gross. Because <laughs> it sounds like they're not supposed to be. I know. Also, slab just is not an appetizing description of a portion of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true, too. What were we talking about? Oh, insults. My favorite was definitely, get out of my way, jerks, I'm coming through. And he does follow that up by calling them turkeys. But uh, as a backup, I have Beast Boy is trying to describe to Wonder Girl what just happened. He tells her to calm down because she's freaking out. He says, we found my dad, but he attacked us. He's crazy, really crazy now. He used all his powers. Almost killed Vic with him. And she says, what did you do? Just stand there and crack jokes? It's like, whoa, ouch. Yeah, not a zinger per se, but very hurtful. Yes. But of course, yes, the clear winner is get out of my way, jerks. Because y'all turkeys. Exactly. Nothing here but jerks and turkeys. Mm-hmm. Gonna make some turkey jerky. Not moist. No. That is dry. Yes, and teriyaki flavored. Delicious. That is good stuff. Yeah. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Uh, sort of. So it's 87, which... Um, 86, actually. Oh, that's right. The reprint is 87. 86 still works. So what's that put us between Empire Strikes Back and Jedi? Nope. Uh, Jedi came out in 83. Okay. Between Jedi and movies that shall not be talked about? Uh-huh. We have... Gosh, who is it? Is it Dr. Clyburn who makes the comment about Borgie being so so hard on his robot body that uh, if it were R2-D2, he would be drummed out of the droid core. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the same thing, and I think it still works as a timestamp because even though Return of the Jedi came out a couple of years before this, I think maybe the droids cartoon was on at this point, so maybe that's where the concept of there being a droid core came up, but I think more than that, I think at any point before then, you could have had one of the Teen Titans making a Star Wars reference. But having a more established, respectable medical professional make a reference to Star Wars, I think by the mid-80s, it had entered the general cultural consciousness enough that that seems more reasonable, that just anybody would be using that as a cultural touchstone, not just teenagers, you know? I love that. I love that R2-D2, like, goofy little guy, is such a common cultural thing for us here. Also, Droidcore, if that's not a kind of music, I'd be interested for it to be one. Oh, I probably wouldn't like it. I mean, like, it seems like it would either be Electronica or, like, I'm thinking of Lou Reed's Machine Music album. Yeah, but just imagine if that was good. <laughs> I'm afraid my imagination just doesn't stretch that far. <laughs> 
did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Who acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? I went with Donna for this because of her violent response to Dick's insightful but also really hurtful tirade, but particularly the fact that she totally kicks his ass while crying her eyes out. Yeah. That is a dramatic thing to do. It absolutely is. There is also, just before she backhands him through the wall, when he is being especially hurtful towards her, there is a close-up as he is saying, You remember the first time we fought blood? He was able to walk through Raven's soul self. Now Raven's in his power, and you didn't ask why he'd want her. Great fearless leader. Just great. He is being a total dick while he is saying that. But the close-up of her, she is doing like a fist clench in front of her face and a gasp like she is on the cover of a romance comic book. It is extraordinary. Yep, I had that noted too. And I realized that there's a trend in my president of the drama club selections. And it often has to do with when you're clenching a fist with emotion. Yeah, I think that's a good sign that you are maybe being a little bit dramatic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, she she absolutely is. And there is a lot of characters that are acting pretty dramatically in this issue. I think Beast Boy entering the room through the skylight rather than the door would maybe be qualifying. I think Dick's tirades are certainly very melodramatic and over the top, but I think Donna ends up taking the drama cake and then crying because it's not the flavor she ordered. Cake no one wants. No, somebody left it out in the rain. (laughs) Moist drama cake. (laughs) (laughs) Moist slabs of cake. I had Gar as a runner-up for his door crying, where he's grasping the frame of the door and crying, facing the viewer. Yeah. Although I feel like he has a fair amount to be upset about at that point. Oh, for sure. It's legitimate, but it's drama. Good point. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Man, nobody can rock the mom jeans like Sarah Sims. That that outfit is very 80s. We have a, a fuchsia, probably suede jacket with a fuzzy white like rabbit fur collar and tiny lapels. And a mauve, mauve, how do you say that color? Mauve. Mauve sweater with a massive 80s turtleneck. And, uh, and the high-waisted mom jeans. Yeah, it is a good and very cohesive look. It is also one of a trio of turtlenecks we are treated to in this issue. Donna is also wearing a big turtleneck sweater uh, with a red blazer over it, which I felt was noteworthy. Especially given her behavior in this issue, it reminded me a lot of depictions of Adeline Kane that we've seen in this. Mm. It's a very specific look, and one that I think is a little bit more severe than we're used to seeing on Donna. And we also saw that Gary is wearing a turtleneck, too, with a uh, nice uh, tan kind of suit. So yeah, a trio of turtlenecks, but you're right, I think Sarah Sims' fashion is the standout in this. Most other people are either wearing superhero costumes we've seen before, or lab coats and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Terry had a nice blazer, but I'm mad at him, so I don't want to talk about that. Yeah, fuck him. He wasn't even wearing the blazer. He was just wearing the shirt with a tie. 
no no jacket. That's a lazy man. Yeah, never looks quite right. In this issue, who was your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and who was your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans? Okay, let's start with the good news. For my Aqualad, although his speaking role was small, I went with Borgie because he never gives up. He almost died fighting the Freshmaker, um, in part protecting his buddy Gar, and then through sheer force of will, and I guess the medical attention of Dr. Clyburn, managed to stay alive. So, good job, Borgie. Yeah, I can see that. I feel like he had a little bit more of a passive role in this issue than I would like to see in my Aqualad. He did have that thing early on where he is on death's door and he still managed to raise his laser cannon and shoot the Freshmaker with it. So I I think that's a, a legitimate choice. I was tempted to go with Beast Boy, but not only did he use his friend as a battering ram to go through a skylight, but he also took a little bit too much delight in taunting Wonder Girl in their little talk. And he was projecting kind of a lot onto Cyborg that I don't think was necessarily accurate. As he's waiting in the waiting room, he keeps saying shit along the lines of, and I just know me and Cyborg were going to go off and be our own crime-fighting team together. He's ready to quit the Titans just like I am. And we saw them having that discussion in the previous issue, and that was not the impression that I had gotten of Victor's stance. He was humoring Beast Boy a little bit and letting him talk things through, but he was vocally opposed to the idea of quitting the team at that point. So a little bit too revisionist history on Beast Boy for me to give him the nod. I went with Aqualad. Because he decided to show up when Wonder Girl called him, despite the rest of the team that she had assembled around them, and gave her that meaningful look at the end that is like, hey, I'm still your friend, I'm still here for you, but look look at these uh, bozos you got me hanging out with. That's a good out, I wish I had thought of that. Plus he's Aqualad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, in defense of Cyborg, the other characters, other than the ones that show up on the very last page... Each one of them had some flaws that made it so I couldn't give him the, the nod. And one thing about Beast Boy, too, that you didn't mention, where I'm not sure if I'm just reading the way that it is drawn funnily, but it looks like he's giving Sarah Sims a kiss on the cheek that she didn't expect in the park. You could be right. He says, hiya, beautiful, dot, dot, dot. Long time, how you doing? And there's this weird like explosion kind of icon between her cheek and his lips. Oh, I honestly thought those were her earrings. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. That is weird. Gary looks really mad, like the way he's saying, pleased to meet (laughs) you. I think he's just mad that not everybody instantly recognized him as Gary. Mm. Either way, I feel like Beast Boy and Gary both did a bad job. Yeah, although I I will say Beast Boy, for the most part, did a pretty good job. He did all the shit that we both talked about, but he also did fight off his dad pretty well at the beginning um, and had the emotional resiliency to deal with being blamed for the death of all of his friends and family. And yeah, he gave Wonder Girl a little bit of shit, but he also kind of let her off the hook and 
didn't storm off when she was a total dick to him. So uh, he's still my runner-up. He's he's mine too. For but but because the flaws mentioned, he didn't get the nod. Okay. Well, speaking of Beast Boy, who was your Beast Boy in this issue? The worst Teen Titan. <sighs> this pains me to do so, but I wound up going with Donna. Yeah. Because her violent reaction to Dick's hurtful words, I thought, were just super unproductive. And also, when she put the old team together, she didn't think to reach out to um, other members of the Titans to let them know that she was doing that to see if they were still interested. Like, maybe even though she and Dick had a falling out, that would be a way to bridge that or, you know, get Joey out of his funk um, because Cole's dead. She should have thought of that stuff. Yeah, Joey doesn't even appear in this issue. Yeah, she should have given him a call. And also, the things that Dick said, even though they were really mean, were our criticisms of her from the previous issue, where all this heavy shit's going down. Why are you helping your loser husband try and write his paper that he's been working on for three fucking years? Yeah, that he's not going to write anyway. Yeah, I think those are all fair points. I decided to go with Dick as my beast boy in this, uh, just because he he made me angry. And when Donna backhanded him through a wall, it was an overreaction, but it was one that made me pretty happy. And she did call Aqualad to go on a mission, so I can't quite give her the nod as the worst. And Dick, I mean, it's not his birthday anymore, so he's fair game. And he was just such a dick in this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's his attitude was caused this whole cascade effect and made Donna act the way that she acted. He was not wrong, but he was also not fair. And recognizing that he was being unfair to Donna and then immediately just being like, yeah, but fuck it, I don't care. And then going off half cocked and launching an attack against the Church of Blood without having either an exit strategy or even a goal as to how he was going to get the information he just did a bad job. Yep. Yep, he was my runner-up for those reasons. Very good. Corey, what was your favorite panel? My favorite panel in this was on, I believe it's page four, and it's the memory kind of flashbacks slash torture that the Freshmaker is, is putting into Gar's mind. So it's Gar standing in the middle of the page, kind of holding his head, looking very uncomfortable, and the Freshmaker doing a, um emphatic victory, like, arms over the head, casting bad shit on you <laughs> maneuver. And then in pink, the Doom Patrol and all these dead people are showing up in the background looking accusatory. It's pretty powerful. It is. Plus, I've noticed you're a sucker for the pictures that have the characters in the foreground and the, uh, the different colored outlines of characters in the background to represent some kind of psychic mumbo jumbo. Yeah, something about the like fuchsia colored line work in the background has this really strong graphical element to it that is um, striking. Yeah, I I liked that panel a lot. I think for me it comes down to two. There is the final panel, which just made me very happy to see the Titans all assembled there and having Hawk do his ventriloquism on them. So that's definitely up there, but I think I've got to go with, on page two, Beast Boy turning into a lion and attacking his dad. The transformation of him into the lion is so well done. 
Uh, it, it's just a series of images of him being half beast boy, half lion, and making that transition as he leaps. And then you see the full lion. And it really brings up how horrifying his power can be and how intense this scene is in a way that really, really works, especially given how goofy Beast Boy is usually portrayed as. That was the one that, after seeing the cover and being like, oh shit, little bit disappointed this isn't Perez, opening it up and very soon in having that kind of an action scene was like, but you know what? Barreto is fucking killing it too. Absolutely. It's refreshing because we rarely see that much detail put into the transformation process. And there is this really kind of creepy, lycanthropic quality <laughs> to his face changing from green human to giant green lion. Yeah, I, I just, I love that page. And then later he turns into a kangaroo and kicks him. That's fun. But the, uh, yeah, the lion transformation I thought was just really well handled. I also love that in that scene where he's the kangaroo, he's still all like covered in orange crackly energy, is trying to have a reasonable conversation with his dad. And just thinking of Steve Dayton's state of mind in that <laughs> moment, he's just like, I'm talking to a fucking glowing kangaroo. I'm not, I'm not losing it. I'm fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. Where's some rats I can blow up with my mind? Everything's normal. Perfectly normal. I'm putting a new Doom Patrol together. Maybe I could get this glowing kangaroo. Nope, that's my stepson. <laughs> He's like, Dad, be reasonable. Yeah, it does have to undercut your pleas for reasonableness when you are a glowing kangaroo. One would think. Did you have any other uh, panels you wanted to talk about? I had a backup, which I think is page 13, kind of in the middle of the page. And it's when Cyborg's laid out on the operating table at Star Labs. And I wanted to highlight it because it is an example of how good the artwork is because... Perez is the benchmark to which I, I hold things for this series. And it mm -hmm. does have that really nice kind of technical sci-fi detail that I appreciate with Perez's work. That is really well done. The whole operating sequence that's done in this book is really, really good. There's just one panel of Clyburn wiping her brow and being exhausted but still concentrating really hard. And the creation of that expression is really, really hard to do and is really well done, too. Yeah, throughout the artwork, it's just great. And yes, the technology stuff in Star Labs is really well done. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go from the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, June... What was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! The month of June started on a really low note for our friend Aqualad. He, being somebody that is so intellectually curious, is someone who also finds their mind, at times, unpleasantly busy. And one of the things that helps mitigate this is listening to the soothing sounds of um, some classical guitar music. One of his heroes was the famed uh, Spanish composer and guitarist Andre Segovia, who passed away on June 2nd um, at the ripe old age of 94, but still it was a very sad moment for classical music world and, and the fans of it. So Aqualad, part of his, uh, you know how people kind of, or maybe this is just me, but I, I feel like there's categories of food and, and there's this category of like sad food <laughs> or things that you want to gravitate towards when you're feeling grief. 
Yeah, like a slab of moist ham. Ugh. So Aqualad's grief food is um, the beloved candy from 1950s, the Swedish fish. Ah. So little little red fish candies. Um, so he gets a big bag of Swedish fish and he sits down, pops open the hi-fi, puts on Segovia's 1927 hit Sweet and E major, and, you know, kind of has has a little melancholy moment, but starts to feel better as he's eating his fish and... As he's sitting there looking down at the little red confection in his hand, he thinks, You know, I gotta get away from it all. Just take a break. I hear Sweden is actually a pretty cool place. They love swimming there. And, you know, he actually remembers reading that there's a a swimming federation there that has something like 300 different clubs throughout the country, over 12,000 licensed swimmers. And he's like, yeah, shit, maybe I should just go to Sweden and hang out with some swimmers. So he finishes the Swedish fish. Jumps in the ocean and swims all the way to the Nordic uh, part of the world. Gets to Sweden there. He is, you know, kind of goes on a tour of the different like pools and open waterways. And it's just really having himself a nice time. And he sees this guy doing these really intense kind of water workouts where he's jumping out of the water like a porpoise or a dolphin. He's like, what the heck is this? This is this is curious. So he goes over and introduces himself. And it's this guy, Patrick. Schoberg and Aqualad, also being a fan of the Olympics, recognizes him as a champion high jumper who took the silver medal at the Los Angeles uh, Games back in 84. And they're talking. It turns out Schoberg also loves Swedish fish, but he's on this diet and he's training for the upcoming uh, 86 Olympics and he can't break a 7 foot 10 inch jump and that's, that's what he thinks he needs to get past to set the record and so he and Aqualad actually kind of work together because he's just super impressed with Aqualad's she strengthened uh, legs and jumping ability so Aqualad rigs up this apparatus with some bungee cords and the pool and everything and uh, the, like one of those high dive platforms that he adjusts and he hangs a little Swedish fish off the end of the platform at about seven feet above the water and um, has Schoberg just continue to jump and try and get it and he wants that fucking fish so bad he eventually is able to make it and so with his newly, uh, in air quotes, he strengthened legs, he goes on to win gold at the Rome Olympics on the 26th of June, setting a world record for the high jump at uh, 7 feet 11 inches, after which uh, he and Aqualad are, you know, they go out and they celebrate with some Swedish fish and a nice bottle of Aquavit. Very nice. So in Sweden, do they just call those things fish? I think they don't really have them there. They, they're a Swedish invention, but they were devised for the U.S. market. Ah, fair enough. Well, that was one thing, or a couple of things, that Aqualad was up to in June of 1987. But perhaps most importantly, he was going and seeing the movie Predator, which debuted in that month. And man, he loved it. Couldn't get enough of that film. Thought it was just really fun. He viewed it as kind of a reinterpretation of the uh, Seven Samurai Magnificent Seven mythos, but with a science fiction alien edge to it. And he, he thought it was really, really great. Plus, he thought it was fun to talk like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So for weeks after he saw the movie, he was just going, Get to the chopper! And he just wouldn't stop saying, Get to the chopper! And so he started just prank calling people and saying that into the telephone. And one of the people that he prank called was Ronald Reagan. He prank called the White House and said, get to the chopper. And Reagan got kind of freaked out. He was like, 
I'm the President of the United States. You can't talk to me that way. I'm the Gipper, etc. And so he didn't know the movie Predator, but he recognized the accent as being clearly Teutonic. So he assumed that East Germany was behind it. And so he flew over to West Berlin and delivered what became a famous speech where he entreated Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Uh, and people thought that that meant that he wanted to, you know, reopen the conversation and for there to be peace between Russia and the United States and the West and the East. But really, he just wanted that that wall taken down so that he could send the U.S. Army after whoever had prank called him and said, get to the chopper. But little did he know that was just actually Aqualad making some prank calls. And then, of course, Aqualad responded to Donna's call and went to the Titan Tower. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in June of 1987. Wow. Yep. Busy month. Yeah, he had a lot going on. Have you seen Predator recently? No, I haven't seen it recently. Holds up pretty well. I mean, it's big and ridiculous, but also pretty good. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us, Corey, and thank you for joining us, listeners. This has been a real treat. We'll be back next week to find out what's happening in the Defenders. But in the meantime, you can find us all up in many aspects of the internets, the uh, the Facebook, the Tweetor, the Tumblr, etc. We're all up in there. If you'd like to get into touch with us, we can be reached via our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294, or as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show monetarily, I know I'd certainly appreciate that, and you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Donors get access to a ton of exclusive content. I've made a bunch of little videos where I do reviews of classic comic books. I recently just did a series of short videos about some of my favorite lesser-known Steve Ditko comics. There's a few bonus podcasts that Corey and I have recorded, and there's also the monthly show that I co-host with my wife Lisa, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show, which is a bonus show that we do about 70s Howard the Duck comics. So if you donate, you get access to all that. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is leave us a review pretty much any place you can leave a review, or just tell somebody about the show and that you think they should listen to it. If, you know, you think that they should listen to it. So, till next week, remember, slabs of moist ham. Uh. Bye! So gross. And they knew it. And they knew it. Let's go. Let me explain something to you, Earthquake. The only time a tugboat goes. In reverse is when you put it in reverse.